it's been a bit longer hiatus for the podcast than we originally planned. What can I say other than it's 2020, and well, at this point, we should all be expecting the unexpected. We do have new regularly scheduled episodes coming in just a few more weeks. In the meantime, we've got two special episodes for you with first-time interviewers on the show. The first of these is this week, with the second coming next Thursday. Both of these were recorded a few months ago and have been sitting in the That's So Hindu vault awaiting editing. What you're about to listen to is an interview done by HAF national team member Fred Stella. In this episode, Fred speaks with Ram Sahadeo and Vishnu Bisram about the state of affairs for Hindus living in Guyana. They discuss challenges the Hindu community there faces, such as being targeted for conversion by Christian groups, alcoholism in the community, corruption in Guyana's politics, as well as how discoveries of new large oil reserves in the Caribbean nation factor into all of this. Hope you enjoy it. I'm Fred Stella. Welcome to another edition of That's So Hindu. If you've been a fan of this podcast, you might remember an episode when I was the guest, as I engaged in conversation with my colleague Samir Kalra on my lecture slash listening tour of Guyana that took place in 2019. Well, we did not want to make Guyana the cause of the week, so to speak, and then just move along to other issues. So over these many months, we at HAF have been actively involved in monitoring various situations there since my return, including the recent election, the nation's new status as a potentially oil-rich nation, conversion practices, etc. So we thought one way to stay connected is to place me on the other side of the microphone. Today, we've invited two gentlemen who maintain strong connections to the home of their birth to discuss some of the most pressing issues of the day. We'll also provide some history to how this South American Caribbean nation has maintained strong Hindu presence in the face of so many obstacles low these many years. So with me today, first of all, Dr. Vishnu Bishram. He was born in Guyana, where he received his formative education. He is a fourth generation Indian whose eight great-grandparents came from India as indentured laborers. He migrated to New York to pursue college studies at the age of 16. He studied biochemistry for his undergraduate degree and then branched off into another undergraduate major in political science. He went on to earn graduate degrees in political science, history, economics, sociology, and educational administration. He completed doctorates in history, sociology, and political science, and plans to resume studies to complete the PhD in economics that he started. Dr. Bishram is an educator who has taught for some 45 years. He is a prolific writer on the Indian diaspora issues and also a pollster. He has been closely involved in the struggle for free and fair elections in Guyana going back to 1968. He played a prominent role in the five months battle for the declaration of the right winner of last March 2nd's election in Guyana. Also with me is Ram Sahadeo. He was born in Guyana when Gandhi was still alive and completed his secondary education and worked as a teacher and then a civil servant before leaving for the USA. Between 1969 and 71, he was uh, getting his BA in political science and public administration at California State University. 
And then he went on to the University of Windsor in 1975 to complete a law degree. He practiced law in Ontario, concentrating on immigration, refugee, family, and criminal law. He initiated the Mahatma Gandhi Scholarship at McMaster University in Ontario. He edited a version of the Bhagavad Gita, translation and commentary by Gandhi included. And he's the author of Mohandas K. Gandhi, Thoughts, Words, Deeds. The text includes the entire Gita in English with quotes and comments by Gandhi. His main interest since his retirement is to study the life of his great soul and share it with all humanity, but in particular in South America and the Caribbean. This involves writing and speaking about the life and works of Mahatma Gandhi in the interest of reducing world conflicts. He writes numerous articles in magazines and newspapers in several countries, and he contributed an article to the World Hindu Congress uh, magazine in 2018 on conversion. So we welcome to this edition of That's So Hindu, Vishnu and Ram. Namaste, gentlemen. Namaste, namaste, namaste Fred. Thank you so much. Certainly. Namaste, Fred. Glad to be aboard. Yeah, That's very right. happy. Uh, th this, is, uh, this conversation is long overdue. Um, uh, Vishnu, let me ask you this. When you, you're in New York State right now, uh, what city? New York City. It, right in New York City. Okay. When you meet um, Hindus who are Indian American, uh, whether they're first generation, second generation, but their connection is directly with India, not, not another country such as Guyana or Trinidad. Uh, uh, do you find that they are aware that there is a strong Hindu presence in the Caribbean, uh, or are they kind of surprised when they, when they meet you? When I first came in 1977, and I met other Indians who looked like me, and the conversation naturally centers around which part of India are you from? Um, it, it's not about the Caribbean. Very few Indians in the 70s or even in the 80s knew about Indians who were outside of India. So naturally they thought we are from India. And so when you mention places like Guyana, there's which part of India is that from? And those who have heard of Guyana, they would say, oh, Ghana. I said, no, 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 Guyana to distinguish it from Ghana in Africa. So it is a relevant and a valid question that very, very few Indians from India, South Asia, are familiar with the presence, not only of Hindus, of Indians outside of India who have been in Guyana for some 182 years. That's been the history of our presence. Uh, Ram, would you say you've had the same experience uh, in Canada or no? Oh, yes, generally um, the same experience, but not only in Canada, even in India. I was in India up to February. I was uh, mostly South India and uh, spent a lot of time uh, in Gujarat. And people would ask me uh, the same uh, question, whether, which part of, uh, you know, they would associate Ghana with, uh, <laughs> Guyana with Ghana in Africa. Especially you talk about Gandhi too, they would think that you're somewhere from South Africa or that part of the world. And, and, and I would say that I certainly had the same experience when I told people last year 
that I was going to or had just returned from Guyana, very few people could locate it when I would say, do you know where Guyana is? Most people said no. A few people uh, said Africa, and a few other people were correct and said somewhere in the Caribbean. Uh, and what would you say is, in general, the relationship between the greater Indian American, in, and, and we'll talk about North America because uh, Ram is from Canada. Um, so the the Indians who are directly from India and the Indians who are a few generations removed, uh, such as yourself, Vishnu and, and Ram, is, is the relationship a tight one? Uh, are you made to feel like you're different, that you're an outsider, an outlier, so to speak, or have you been warmly welcomed by the greater Hindu community? Initially, um, I think all of us who are from the Caribbean or even from places like Africa, uh, we were seen as an outlier community, an outsider community. We were not seen as people who were from India. In fact, uh, they were rather surprised. You look Indian, um, you consider yourself a Hindu, but, but you're not from India. So therefore there must be something wrong that you are not Indian. And that perhaps you're also not Hindu because because you're not from India. <laughs> so that has been my initial um, reaction and 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 um, interaction uh, with these Indians that I met in the '70s. Of course, even when I was at City College, where I studied City College in New York, of the City University system, we had that same experience because there was a club called the India Club, and so when we saw a flyer of a Diwali celebration. We went, and they were stunned that we have come there. We can't speak Hindi. Um, we consider ourselves Hindus who are there to celebrate Diwali, but we are not from India. And so right now there was a feeling of rejection. And in fact, because of that feeling, we went and formed our own club called the Indo Club. And the Indo Club encompasses Indians from all over the world, not just Indian from the Caribbean. So... Um, so, so that, that has been my um, encounter and experience with uh, Indian nationals uh, from India. And, and how about uh, today? Has it improved? Well, from the 1970s to now, there has been substantial uh, improvement in um, inter, inter, interactions and interrelationships because the Indians from India and the Indians from the Caribbean are now living in communities that are mixed and many have, there have been many intermarriages. Um, they get to know who we are now, uh, the, as opposed to in the 70s and 80s. So they, this, this relationship has, has improved substantially. Um, in fact, uh, many of us belong to the same organizations. For example, when Gopia was formed, we became part of Gopia. And uh, we were accepted on, on equitable terms, so to speak. Uh, Ram, let me ask you this. There are Caribbean temples throughout North America. My first question is, are there differences between uh, Trinidadian temples and Guyanese temples and uh, temples that serve the people of Suriname, or are there just Caribbean temples? No, I think there's slight differences. Suriname, I really cannot answer for because I have never been to a Suriname temple per se. 
the, the temples develop along national lines, so to speak. You will have mostly, um, there's a mixture, but uh, if you will have a, a, a Guyana temple, mostly you'll have a Guyana priest. Uh, Trinidad, you will probably have a, a, a Trinidadian priest with, with slight differences. But going back to your earlier question, what I experienced in the 70s in Canada is some of the things that would brought, bring uh, Guyanese, uh, Hindus, and Indian, and from Hindus from India together was we starting mostly with the dress, uh, the music, and they would be amazed how much uh, good singers we have from the Caribbean. Like I had a case where two guys were fighting who was better, Mohammed Rafi or Mukesh, and they ended up in criminal court after a big uh, assault. <laughs> um, the food and so on. But we also developed some unique uh, things, like uh, we used to have fun, like they never had dal puri. They wanted to know how we get the split peas in the roti. And that, all of those things are a little uh, invention and different. But today, today, I think the, what brings us closer to the get together is, is general issues affecting Hindus throughout the world. You know, you're talking about India coming on board, I saw Vishnu's program the other day with uh, Rajiv Mahotra um, talking about the same issue. We have the Suriname uh, mm -hmm. president taking his oath on uh, the Vedas and in Sanskrit. All of these things are bringing us closer together, uh, no matter which part of the world we come from. I have clients from uh, Ghana, and they were telling me there were three... Um, uh, temples there with swamis, all of whom were converted to Hinduism, and all of this is happening. That's that's uh, very heartening to hear. Uh, Vishnu, uh, tell us right now what are the most pressing issues in Guyana, from your estimation. Uh, just just to refer back a little bit to this issue of about temples from each country. The, the temples really center on nationals from a particular country. So in New York, for example, we must have had about 75 temples for the last 40 years that have been uh, uh, established. And, and each one, <clears throat> each one is centered around a Guyanese, or, or no, sorry, around Guyanese or around Trinidadians. There are no Suriname temple per se. There was one, but for whatever reason, it seemed to be, have become dysfunctional. Um, but you would have nationals of, of, of both countries um, um, attending mandirs uh, of, of the other group. So you will find many Guyanese at Trinidadian temples and many Trinidadians at Guyanese temples. So there is the gelling of the nationalities. Um, it, become, it becomes Hindu because of the common way of worshiping, which is somewhat slightly different and distinct from worshiping um, by groups from India. With regards to issues that are facing the Hindu community, the biggest challenge right now is the, the shrinking percentage of Hindus uh, in Guyana. Um, when uh, indentureship ended in, the, in 1920, and even for a few decades afterwards, the Hindu population in Guyana among Indians was over 80%. Today is just about half, or just about 60% of the Indian population are Hindus. So there's a, there's a, a, a large conversion rate. Um, so I would say that that would be the biggest issue right now. And, and then, of course, we have all the other social issues uh, that normally um, 
uh, affects every community in every part of the globe, uh, alcoholism, um, teen pregnancy, and so forth. And uh, as you know, that was uh, the idea of conversion or the, the, the problem of conversion, particularly conversion by unethical means, was the reason that I visited Guyana last year. Growing up in Guyana, did you face pressure to convert? Yes, I did. I, I, in fact, there was a lot of pressure, and not just pressure from the from the school headmaster and principal and the teacher, but also from pre, from peers who themselves would have converted. Now, people converted not not for salvation, not certainly not for spiritual salvation. They converted for material salvation, meaning that it was an avenue for a uh, a job, for uh, improved lifestyle. Uh, to get perhaps um, handouts. Um, in the school I went to, uh, which is an Anglican school, uh, we used to call it English school, um, it was a requirement in the morning to, 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 to attend um, church services. So because the church was right in the, in the compound, and so you go there and, and then you're encouraged uh, to, to convert. And, and you were assured that if you convert and when you have completed schooling, you would, um, you would be employed. You would get a job as a civil servant or as a teacher, for sure. Um, and this, this went on for a long time. I think it, it only changed in the 1980s. And if, if you were to have converted, how do you think your family would have reacted? Would they have just assumed, well, if he wants a good life, maybe that's the best thing? Or would it really have been a heartbreaking experience for them? I think it would have been a very heartbreaking experience because my grandparents were adamant about conversion. They were very adamant about attending certain schools because they fear that we will become conversion. And once you, once you become converted, you lose your culture, as has been the case with many Indians who have converted. And as we know about the experience of uh, the slaves who came and, uh, from Africa, became Christians, and they lost virtually their entire cultural way of life. Um, I don't think I would have been accepted very well by other Hindus, because once you, once you convert, you alienate yourself from the rest of the Indian community. You no longer find yourself socializing among other Indians. You don't find yourself attending certain um, other cultural events, whether they are concerts, whether they are um, among their services, and um, whether there are Hindu weddings or Hindu um, services, pujas, and so forth. So yes, it, I would have been isolated and alienated by myself as well as from the community. Uh, let's talk about some of the uh, other issues that uh, we have been discussing on email, and I know that uh, it's, it's in the news. For instance, when I was in Guyana, uh, I, was, I was told that there was no such thing as social drinking. And, and tell me if, if either of you disagree with this, that, 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 that there was drinking... But there wasn't social, by social drinking, I mean, hey, let's go out and have a beer. Let's go have a glass of wine. And then you have a glass, maybe two, and then you move on with your life. And that uh, uh, in Guyana, uh, and I don't know whether this is 
peculiar specifically to the Hindus um, or in general with the African population as well, but that if you're going to drink, you're going to drink to excess. Uh, and that, of course, the, the, that means that there's a significant problem with alcohol abuse there. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, Ram, I'll start with you this time. Is, is, that, is that a fair assumption or, or uh, a stereotype? I, I think it's a lot of distinctions to be made, but if you really want to talk about the issues facing Hindus in Guyana, we will have to put this program for about 100 hours. Um, I will concentrate on a few areas. One is a conversion, as uh, was mentioned, and education, and also the alcoholism. Among Hindus in the countryside, you will find serious drinking problems. And that is also related to um, domestic abuse and probably a lack of education. Lack of education, not just for men, but historically, mostly for girls. It is one of my favorite subjects because I used to drink when I was a young teacher, as you mentioned in my resume. And this is a cultural thing. The young teachers have to buy alcohol for the older teachers because you want to belong. It was the same idea with conversion. They, uh, we, we have changed a bit now, but even there, the courage is absent, as you have seen. The, uh, the, the Hindus mostly in, that graduated mostly to the city, they will probably have a social drink. In fact, I, I think this thing is so serious that we have to tackle it globally. Um, and I studied a bit uh, of it in Gujarat, which is a dry state, because people in Guyana are saying, you can't solve this problem. But you see, in Guyana even, the people who manufacture and distribute and sell alcohol, you would not find them intoxicated in the streets or, uh, or have a, you know, a bottom house drink where nobody leaves the table until the whole bottle is finished. And then they, they would not even know what's happening at their homes. They, you would go, I drank alcohol, as I said, when I was a young man. And if uh, karma follows you around, if I go back to the villages, the guys would come to me and say, buy, buy, buy me a drink. If I walk with uh, Swami or Avidev, uh, nobody will ask me that question because these are gentlemen who never drank. And then the other guys will say, man, you're a big shot now. You're a lawyer. You don't want to drink with us. Because uh, it's a serious thing. And uh, as I said, karma follows us around. But it can be solved. It can be solved. I think a lot of courage needs to be uh, um, shown. And uh, if it can be solved in places like Gujarat, where you have about 62 million plus people, why can't it be solved in a country of 800? What's it, 800,000 people, less than a million. Um, but the, 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 the ramifications of it is in the whole society, but in my view, most prominent and pronounced among Hindus, also with the suicides and so on. Uh, Vishnu, anything to add to that? Yeah, those are um, uh, good points that he mentioned. Suicide and, 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 and education are very serious issues uh, facing the Hindu community. Um, there is no such thing as a social drink in Guyana. Yeah, as he correctly said, once you started drinking, you drink till you are drunk. You drink till that bottle is completed. 
Um, it's been this culture going back uh, from the period of the indentureship years. See, when the Indians came, they needed some avenue of let out. Um, after a very hard week of work, it's not wasn't easy to work 12 hours a day. And, and, and when they received their compensation, whatever the amount was, the people who owned the liquor stores, the liquor barons, were, were also the Europeans. And so ha- having people take a social drink is not going to, um, is going to earn you much profit. So you encourage alcoholism. And so this alcoholism developed out of the indentured period and continued afterwards up until today. As he correctly said, uh, the liquor barons today are not so much the Europeans. It's, it's the Hindus themselves who, um, who own the liquor shops. Uh, the, the, the rum shops in Guyana are not owned by members of the other community. Most of them are Hindus. And as Fred said, uh, as, as, as Ram said, we can educate them. We need, we need greater effort and we need to start at a very young age to point out the, 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 the serious repercussions of, uh, of drinking, um, which has uh, affected so many lives, destroyed so many lives. Yeah. That drinking not only affects your health, but it also affects family lifestyle. There have been so, so many broken families. Um, so, yes, um, alcoholism and social drinking are issues. Um, it, doesn't, it also exists in other communities as well. But I believe initially the Africans had stayed away from liquor and later on um, gravitated towards liquor. And they are more into social drinking than Indians are who, tend to become greater number of alcoholics. Fred, if I may, I, since you um, prepared this conference, I did uh, a research and you were very fortunate to have been there and be heckled at a week by a drunk person. I was. Because, yes. My comparison was, um, you know, Charlie F. Andrews, who was Gandhi's emissary, he went to Guyana in 1930 for about five months. You were only there for about eight or nine days. And if I read, I will, um, I would like to refer to the book Impressions of British Guyana, 1930, on different pages where he talks about the rum shops in Mosul Estate, you know, in New Amsterdam, various places where he go, he would hold meetings and the villages themselves will be reeked with rum shops. There will be free fights drunken, semi-drunken people, Roosevelt Village, rum shops all over the place, and it destroys their life. It's ruined to their character. But what is also interesting, because you may recall the trip from Parika to Esukribo on that boat, which you where you enjoy the islands and so on. I sure did. On page 89 of the book, if I may read just a bit, while crossing over on this river, and this is a uh, Charlie Andrews writing, while crossing over in the river steamer from Essequibo, I had a good opportunity of talking over the whole situation with Reverend J. Kidd of the Anglican Mission. And he had worked in India in the United Provinces, and he saw the people growing up, uh, the same people in the villages of India. But when he came to Guyana, he says he doesn't understand why, um, you know, there was such good home life of the Indian peasant in North India, but in Guyana, there was a strong liquor drinking and it is practically unknown in these Indian villages in India. Yet in Demerara, it had become almost universal. 
And, you know, that was the experience then in 1930, and you have experienced it in 2019. Said nothing has changed much in that area. In some other areas, we have some changes. But this is getting worse in that area, in my view, compared to the report that I read from 1930 by Charlie Andrews. It reminds me of what I saw in northeast rural India. Uh, The same kind of alcohol-based culture uh, is often present where, as I say, no social drinking, just destructive drinking. Um, I, I appreciate, I appreciate the, the comments that both of you gave. Uh, in uh, regards to time, I think we should move on to politics. Uh, and I know we, can, we could do probably a couple of hours on this alone, but uh, let's uh, try to be succinct. Um, Ram, you told me that uh, the corruption has been a part of Guyanese politics for a long, long time. Could you give us a brief history? And I'll, I'm asking this of both of you, actually. Vishnu, you can chime in as well. The, the history of politics, how did Guyana get to where it is today? Well, historically, there was very little involvement of the Hindus in politics. Um, there was uh, Jong Bahadur Singh in the old days. He had gone to India and so on, and he was involved uh, before independence. But I think uh, the Hindus and Indians generally got more active and Chedi Jagan and Burnham uh, had formed the PPP. Um, but then there was a split. So then there was race-based politics, um, which uh, haunts us to this day. The corruption itself, I don't think was always there. Uh, uh, I think maybe it started mostly in the 60s and later when... Um, Chedi Jagan was off. Um, whatever else people might think with him, he's, he's an honest politician. Lots of people disagree with other aspects of him, but when he died, uh, he didn't die a, a millionaire like some of the others uh, that are present today. Uh, some of the wealthiest people um, in the world are in Guyana. Um, so now the, the problem, uh, the corruption is very, very serious. I think in the Corruption index, they're about probably uh, lower than India, if I remember correctly. Uh, Vishnu? Yeah, so Ram has it right. Um, There was not much corruption, in fact, any corruption in politics uh, in the the early period. Uh, Certainly, um, throughout the colonial era, there there wasn't any corruption. In fact, uh, the governor general, whose name I can't recall right now, had indicated that he, 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 he served as governor general in several places and that he was rather shocked that in Guyana, under the Chetty Jagan um, premiership, it was the only government that he had ever come across where there was absolutely no corruption, nil. Jagan had no taste for corruption and no taste for anyone who was corrupt around him. In fact, one of his ministers was found to be not corrupt, but engaging some kind of business transaction in which his business would have benefited. And Jagan sacked him from the cabinet. Uh, this was before independence. And then after independence, uh, when he became uh, pre- president between 1992 and 1997, one of the ministers um, was, was able to pull off some string to give his son a scholarship to Washington. And he forced the minister to, to, to withdraw that scholarship 
and also to resign. The minister had to resign. So um, under Jagan, there was not any corruption. Corruption only came about during the Burnham period from 1965 to 1992. And after the, after the Jagans died in 1999, um, it, it became extremely corrupt. Now, you can't talk about politics in Guyana without talking about race. So when you were in this golden age that you talk about uh, back in the 60s and a little later on, was there, in your view, uh, an equability between the African and Indian populations in politics? So, so as Ram correctly pointed out, um, in, in, in the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s, the two groups tried to work together on the issue of uh, political independence. Um, in 1953, they were able to form this, well, 1950s, they were able to form a political party and contest the election in 1953, which they won uh, by a landslide. And of course, the government didn't uh, survive very long. The British toppled the government, removed the government six months later. And that was when um, uh, the, 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 the racial conflict uh, be, became pronounced and, and worsened over the period of time. From 1955, thereafter, we ended up with two racially uh, formed political parties, uh, one of Indians and one of Africans. And regrettably, that has continued from 1955 to now. Um, and it got progressively worse. Of course, uh, race relations when the PPP was in government was always been was always much better. You have more um, equity in relationship than when uh, the African Party took office uh, between 1965 and 1992, and between 2015 and 2020. Um, some people say the last five years under the African government, African political party, was the worst form of racism that ever existed in Guyana. It was not even close to what existed during the most racist and fascist period of Guyanese uh, political history between 1965 and 1992. So um, perhaps Ram might want to add more to that. Yeah, um, you know, um, there was a little difference in, in this. It's linked also to the history and the education because um, as the... Um, Blacks became Christians, and then they graduated away from the sugar plantations, mostly into government jobs. And the police army, for example, is still predominantly Blacks. Uh, in the other days, all the government jobs, most of the government jobs were from them. And then that related to the Christianity and conversion. The education is back to that again in the countryside, even girls or Hindus wouldn't go to these schools, and that resulted in their not being educated. Um, so that those influences are still uh, are changing very quickly because after the 60s, uh, the education system for the Hindus were rapidly improving with government schools and so on, and they start taking jobs more and more in the city government. But still the army and the police, for example, uh, still has a lot of uh, work to do to balance that racial equation. And that's where the insecurity is felt by the uh, Indians. They may win at the polls, which they, you know, but not, not anymore. Now there is just one seat that may divide um, 
the winner from the loser. And oftentimes, religion, of course, can be a dividing line in politics. But would you say in the Indian community in Guyana that the Hindus and the Muslims vote together? And how about the Indian Christians? Do they vote in a solid block or are the Indian Christians more in support of uh, the, uh, the black party? No, generally the party divided along racial lines, not religious lines. East in, you know, Indians versus black. That's generally. Uh, I think, you know, that sadly it's still the case because look, there might be an election in 2025. And uh, a friend made a statement the other day. He says, 80% of the people today already know who they're going to vote for in 2025. What happens in the meantime would not change their minds. Um, he, 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 Ram is right. Um, there isn't that much religious differences when it comes to voting. Um, the communities might socialize differently, uh, Hindus, Muslims, and, and, and Christians, Indians. But when it comes to politics, they all will support one political party. That has been the case anyway for, for almost all of the elections. And I think it will, it will remain this way only because in 2015, when, the, when many Indians from all, all religious groups um, uh, voted for a change for, away from the Indian political party, then the African party really uh, abused it. Um, it was not according to expectations. And I don't think Indians want to experiment with that again. So regardless of religious background, I believe they all will stick with this political party unless this political party messes up uh, very, very badly as it did when it was in office for 23 years. Uh, talk about this recent election and the challenges that came with it and, and where we stand today. Um, well, as you're aware, Fred, um, the election was held on March uh, 2nd. Yes. And uh, the declaration as to the winner was only made uh, five months after, I believe, on August 2nd. Second. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I was in communication with quite a few people, and uh, the whole world was watching at the situation. And we have to be thankful for organizations like HAF who looked at the situation and decided that they were going to write a letter to uh, Pompeo to make sure that general sanctions would not be imposed because that will harm the most vulnerable. But whoever the rigors are, they should be uh, affected by personal sanctions because it appears even now that there was only a few people at the very top who was involved in this. Um, well, we, we, excuse me, Ram, we, we should uh, clarify to people ju just exactly what the problems were. Why did Hindu American Foundation have to write a letter to Secretary of State Pompeo, what, why? Right. So, oh. so if I may address that, um, Go ahead. Mm -hmm. the, the the election was the election was held. Um, there, of course, there was campaigning and everything went well. Election day itself went well as as well. Uh, the election was relatively free and fair, uh, as so pronounced by international observers, and there were there were observers from so many different uh, international organizations and countries. Um, the the incumbent political party, the party of the Africans, uh, sensing defeat, refused to accept the outcome of the election and in fact claimed that they, they had won when in fact uh, all everyone said, uh, the Kong showed that they lost. And so uh, th this went on for several months 
and the international forces, including uh, a pivotal role being played by the, the Hindu uh, Guyanese diaspora, the Indian diaspora from Guyana, um, uh, lobbying various uh, international ag agencies and governments, including uh, the US, Canada, UK and, and European countries, and even uh, Caribbean countries as well. Um, so a letter became necessary uh, to Mike Pompeo, the Secretary of State, in order to, um, to seek his assistance. And he, the US government, through Pompeo, as well as a number of, uh, of, of other Indian, uh, of not American politicians, um, were approached and, and they were very um, uh, helpful in writing uh, letters to the Guyana government, accept, uh, urging it to accept the, uh, um, the outcome of the elections. So that, that was essentially the reason why um, people were writing. And so the Hindu American Foundation, I believe was approached as one of those organizations to also pen their, their concern and using their clout with Washington to, um, to add to the voices for free and fair elections and for the, to respect the outcome of the of the poll, yeah. As I can add, uh, Fred, briefly, yes, I got involved reluctantly when uh, the ambassador from uh, Canada was uh, in uh, attacked in the sense that some Canadians, right in the area which I live in, on, on Ontario, asked for her recall on the basis that she was interfering with local uh, affairs, and then we started a petition, which. Uh, was in my name, but others got involved and we circulated that. And I think to date we have about 3,400 uh, signatures. And in addition to that, now, um, if I may just briefly mention, another petition was started because there is a problem with the oil contracts with Exxon Mobil. And, yes, uh, yes, I That's uh, the other part, yeah. Yes, that now that is. It's a separate issue, but it's very connected to politics. So uh, let's give a little bit of a history. Uh, all of a sudden, I mean, in the last few years, you were told that you're sitting on some valuable land there in Guyana. Uh, uh, talk about the oil exploration and the, uh, the contracts and the agreements that were made and how many Guyanese, particularly in the Indian and Hindu community, are not pleased with those deals. Vishnu will take that. Okay, so um, in 1999 or thereabout, um, various oil companies approached the government of Guyana. They wanted to do some oil exploration. Why at that particular time? I don't know, but it has long been the belief that the Guyana Basin um, is rich in oil deposits, because it's right next to Venezuela and Trinidad, which, which had large reservoir of oil. Um, and so the Ghana government agreed um, to this deal for exploration. And I believe at the time, since no one knew what was on the ground, um, they agreed to 1% of royalty. And exploration occurred, and it was around 2015, um, they came out with the studies. The studies were done much, much earlier. They came out with the results that, look, you, we have found oil. Um, why they didn't announce it before, I don't know. But when, on the eve of the change in government in May 2015, they announced this. I think it was a week after the, after, after the announcement of the, of the election results and the change in government. Um, 
and 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 that was the history of it. Um, in 2016, the new government signed an agreement to, when it had a chance to reset the contract, agreed to two percent. So um, when it was confirmed that there is oil deposits now, and uh, each uh, subsequent month, more and more oil was found. And today, I believe there must have been over 20 billion barrels of oil that have been um, estimated to be underground, and 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 more finds are being. Um, taking place, more like there is more exploration. So when one finishes, it'll be a lot more billions and billions of barrels of oil. Um, the Guyana government, the, Guyana, the country, only gets two percent royalty, and the standard for other countries has been between twelve and fifteen percent. Now, in dollar terms, it's huge because every one percent uh, increase in royalty is about eight to ten billion dollars. In, in revenues. So if you're only getting two and you're supposed to get 12 or 15, you're talking about an additional 100 billion, 80 billion dollars more, US dollar terms. Uh, so there is this demand and cry uh, for a renegotiation of the contract. Um, the, the government that lost power said, it was not going to renegotiate. The government that has just come in during the campaign gave a commitment that it was going to seek renegotiation. Um, we don't know what will happen. Uh, where it's been only two and a half uh, weeks since the swearing in of the government. So we don't know if they're going to proceed uh, demanding renegotiation of the contract or certainly uh, if there'll be a change in terms of, uh, of uh, other explorations. And, but and, excuse me, uh, uh, um, my question is, what would possess a government if they knew that the standard percentage was, uh, say, 12 or in the neighborhood of that? Why would they be talked into 2%? Well, everyone is asking the same question, that why did you sign for, for 2 when you could have gotten 12 or, or closer to 12 anyway, that even if you had gotten 4, 6, 8, 10, all of that would have been better. The Parliament of Guyana passed a, 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 a law um, in a, approving one of the ministers, uh, the Minister of Natural Resources, to fly to Houston and to negotiate. And that minister uh, agreed to 2%. Um, he, the minister himself said he was instructed to sign the agreement for 2%. He, didn't, he, never released, he never revealed who instructed him to sign the 2%. Now, there were rather some funny things going on in Houston mm. where this minister was splurged in various uh, fancy hotels, and then he was given a trip to, to, to Antigua. Um, and there were reports about uh, all kinds of ben accolades and, and, and benefits showered on him when he was married, and the wedding took place in Antigua. So there are a lot of hanky-panky things that took place uh, during the signing and, uh, in, 19, in 2016. But it is a most relevant question. It, it requires um, that there should be some kind of inquiry of what really took place there. Whether the government will, will pursue it, I don't know. But pressure needs to be mounted on the government to undertake some kind of investigation, some kind of inquiry. And um, whether it is Hindu groups or Guyanese groups or Indian groups, I believe that, that kind of pressure should. Uh, and that is why uh, people like Ram and others are, are pursuing this uh, the struggle, this fight, to have a fairer a contract with ExxonMobil.
And, you know, I spoke to some people in Guyana while I was there, and the prospect of becoming an oil-rich nation didn't excite them necessarily because they have eyes and they see that other nations that have that designation of being oil-rich don't necessarily thrive, that the money stays concentrated uh, in the midst of a chosen few. Is there any plan to make sure that the country truly benefits from the largesse of being oil rich? You are absolutely right. Up until last year, there has hardly been any excitement among Guyanese of, of any race, of all races, about about this, this discovery of oil because they didn't see any benefits accruing to them. Um, and as, as you correctly pointed out, there is this issue of the oil curse um, which 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 has been making the wrongs in Guyana um, over the last uh, year, a couple of years. Uh, but I believe Guyanese are becoming much smarter. Um, they're raising a lot of questions. They're being educated. One of the newspapers has uh, make it, has made it a mission mm-hmm. uh, to have on its front burner every day this issue of oil. Yeah. I am one of those who cared little about the situation, but because I was involved in the petition for, um, during the five months that the election issues were raised, the guys recruited me, and I was practicing law for 35 years. I'm retired. I'm comfortable. I never heard the word flaring. I don't know what it means. Now I'm learning about these things because the environmental factors are very serious. You may recall the incident with uh Exxon Valdez, uh, I think was 1989. Uh, it uh, was, uh, the tanker had run a reef in Alaska. It's about over 13,000 miles, 1,300 miles of, uh, of a beach. They still have oil pockets in some areas. You've, seen the, yes. coast of, you've seen the coast of Guyana. Um, it's only what, two, two, about 200 or less than 200 miles. And if that oil spills right now there is flaring the exact amount is not known they are seeing nine billion cubic feet um, of gases being flared um, but it's about a hundred uh, is it 90 kilometers offshore and the government doesn't have uh, enough ability even to supervise or no they have to take the oil companies word for it so these are, I am part in the learning process. I am part of that that was totally ignorant of this and did not care. I cared more about the culture, as you know, Fred. Uh, let's talk about education, conversion, alcohol, and so on. But this can change the whole country. And it's, uh, you know, they're talking about 55 billion US dollars, according to some calculations. That and that's per year, good. 55 billion per year. Yeah. Yes. And the budget and the budget for Guyana is only 1.4 billion a year. The budget for the whole country, it's approximately that. So you can see what an effect it would have. The corruption is there. Unfortunately, the the contracts, as I understand it, was signed hurriedly and without expert advice. I don't even know. Uh, there were some ministers who admitted they never read the contract. Um, there was a secret. Nobody saw it until recently. And uh, there's, that is why this attempt to renegotiate and the pressure has to be on now on this government 
that they sure. should revisit these contracts. It's not going to be easy. We're writing articles and papers to keep uh, the public informed. And, and again, we might have uh, to get help from overseas. We, uh, we have just a few minutes left on this uh, episode of That's So Hindu, but I want to get to a couple of things uh, quickly. First of all, factionalism. Uh, it seems that Hindus in Guyana are challenged in speaking with one voice. Now, I realize that no religion is monolithic. No society is monolithic. You're always going to have disagreements. But I gather that uh, in the Hindu communities, plural, in Guyana, they are challenged in coming together on some of the very important issues that we're speaking about today. Is, is there agreement here? Or are we going to yes. form a defense? Yes. No, 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 yes. no, you observe, you're, ob, you're keen observant. You're, you're correct. Uh, in fact, you experience that on our trip because uh, once one group will not talk to the other and we were not as productive as we had anticipated before we had gone there, but then there is politics intervention. So when you have issues like uh, any issues uh, that uh, would divide the community, people are silent. In and fact, then you the also politics, have turfs. The politics was involved in a little bit, religion and politics, because there were two major groups that had supported different parties. Um, Vishnu might remember that. Uh, we, we had Ripudaman Prasad. Uh, with yes, one yeah, party you have all those believe, divisions as well. And yes. I believe saying something, I don't know the history much, but... Uh, uh, that is a concern. But the reason we're hoping, Fred, that these things will change is because they are common issues, just like the alcohol and conversion and so on, that should bring the community together because those affect the whole community. And um, I think, uh, as I think ahead about this oil matter and this environment, it may be a cause around Hindus, not just in Guyana, but the whole world can probably consolidate their efforts because Hindus worship nature. The earth, the air, the water, uh, these are things that are going to be affected by Exxon and the oil companies. It's already starting. And if we can get the attention of all the nature, all the nature worshiping uh, organizations around this, we may have a very forceful team. And, and uh, finally, I'd like to talk about the religious presence in Guyana, particularly the priests. Now, uh, Ram, as you know, I was very impressed with the priests, particularly the ones I saw who were young. They, they seem to be, I'm going to use a Christian term here, uh, pastoral meaning that not only did they do ceremonies, but they also acted as counselors and comforters to, to people. And I'm uh, curious, uh, uh, Ram, you and I have had several discussions on this. I'd, I'd like to ask uh, Vishnu his take on the priest system in, in Guyana. Uh, it, it, it's, always, it's always been that way that the the priest was very, very influential in the community, serving not only as for spiritual guidance, but also for um, as, as, as counselors, as you rightly put it, in, in other areas as well. The, the only issue about that, though, 
is that the priests themselves are not trained in counseling. It just happened, uh, it just so happened that there wasn't, there isn't anyone else in the community who was trained as a counselor who could offer proper guidance for issues or problems um, that the community may have. For example, I remember in the 60s and 70s growing up, uh, any problem you have, you went to the pundit. And, and the pundit offered some kind of uh, uh, guidance. Uh, if you're looking for a job, you go to the pundit. If you have to get married, you go to the pundit. Um, so a lot of that has died out. And so, yes, there's still some uh, semblance of remnants. And today, uh, how much, I don't know. Um, I believe that some of the pundits are very genuine in that they wanted to, to help the youngsters uh, in their issues that might, that, that might confront them. Um, so, so my experience has been, yes, that the pundits are very useful and helpful in that regard. So I don't think it's any much different than, say, among Christians. Yes, yes. And, and um, we do have to give a shout out to Swami Aksharananda's school. I was so very impressed with that. And I know that he acts in that similar way. I spent a few days with him and I saw him interact with the community. And uh, he really is, uh, if not in a formal sense, a very informal sense, he is the guru of, of the community there. There is no question about that. Absolutely no question about that. He's the best, not only in Guyana, but in the Caribbean, in the Western world, I would say. Yeah, yeah, I, I do the, appreciate his work. The hope of the priests, uh, Fred, is that they're young, uh, they're knowledgeable, they're educated, um, but in my view, most of them have their own employment, which makes a difference than someone who is just using the priesthood to get an income. Um, but there is some hope there. But before we go, I'd just like to um, recommend to your listeners all the subjects that you are discussing, history and so on. There is a book recently written, very scholarly, by um, Ram, Ramesh Gampat. Uh, he's from that area you visited. Oh, yeah, in it's a terrific, a terrific book, yes. Sanatan Dharma and Plantation Hinduism. Uh, covers all the, the, the issues we've been discussing in great detail. Very scholarly. Very good. Um, yeah. Hey, you know, one other thing, too, it, I don't think we, we should leave without, and that is, what would you request of the greater Hindu community? Now, this would include what would you be asking Hindu American Foundation to do, but I want to expand it beyond just HAF, uh, possibly to VHP and to other organizations uh, that promote Hindu Dharma. Yes, um, quickly, I think um, most of the social services that are um, not being met by the Hindu community, they're being met by all the communities and that part mm -hmm. of the conversion process. For example, let's say medical services. They will go into the society and produce medical services and then they might say, uh, take a pair of glasses and come to my church. Um, when I say these things, you know, I, I think all must be prefaced by what Mahatma Gandhi and Vivekananda says that they're good and bad in all. They're exemplary conduct in all religions by individuals. So the few that are doing this, um, they, they, we can take away their trump card if all of these organizations from abroad can get involved. And because there's division there and no one big uh, unity, it's difficult to get involved like that. 
what I recommend, what I what is involved in in the ni 1992 and afterwards. There's there, all the villages, for example, they have a temple, they may have a school. The people who went to those temples or went to those schools, you connect with them even for social purposes. Find out what they need, and the two can find, can can uh, supply each other with their needs. We did that with the schools, with books, with money, with materials. That we can do because you know there's some 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 villages have two temples, small villages, mm -hmm. and if we get the people who are abroad to coordinate things, all the bigger organizations like HAF, uh, VHP, and so on can be involved. But you know we tried to have conferences there, but because of the division, it couldn't come off. We had them in Trinidad, you know we'll have them in Suriname. But we don't seem to have gel in uh, Guyana as yet. But we have to fill that social services need gap because others are doing it, and you you've seen that. Ram is right, and those those views. We really need uh, Hindu American Foundation and other groups as well to provide some kind of uh, services, uh, as well as to uh, help in the establishment of schools, Hindu schools. We have a paucity of schools in Guyana. Uh, there, there are schools in Trinidad, but not in Guyana. And so um, Swami uh, Akshanand is doing a great job. Uh, we need to encourage more of that. And regrettably, Guyana is such a large country, and you have only one Hindu school on the West Coast. We need Hindu schools in the other regions as well. In Esequibo, on the East Coast, on West Barbies, in Quarantine or East, or East Barbies. Um, and of course, we need medical services and other forms of services. Uh, these would help uh, in, 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 in militating against uh, conversion and, and if we could help with job creation. We could help the Hindu community to, to become self-sufficient, uh, self self-employment, um, where it is practical. All right. Gentlemen, we are out of time, but I want to thank you so very much for uh, joining us. Hey, thank you, Fred, and I uh, hope we could uh, do it again some other time. Indeed. Yes, thanks for having us aboard. I think we need uh, more like this to get the information out to reach more people. I agree. You're listening to That's So Hindu. My name is Fred Stella from the Hindu American Foundation's National Leadership Council. And today we had with us Dr. Vishnu Bishram in uh, New York. And we also had Ramanin Sahadeo, who is from Toronto, Canada.